And so it begins. This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine, considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Hope you enjoy it. All right. After serious technical problems that are not my fault, and I blame, I blame, I blame each funny brain. Really? For most of them? Joke? Some of these are jokes, others are just making people uncomfortable. Anyway, so uh, today, gonna talk, today and next time, we'll talk about uh, sort of the history and origins, both of the study of this discipline and the history and origins of, you know, life on Earth. Well, not life per se, but the evolution of animals and other things. So, courses about the relationship between brain and behavior, which is why, of course, we call it brain and behavior. I, I'd actually prefer if the course was called an introduction to behavioral neuroscience, but I think that would scare people, so. So it's called brain and behavior. So it's not bad because, you know, brain and behavior, that's what the course is about. So it's not a bad title, I guess. So the question of, of, of how brain and behavior are related is something that people have been studying for a freaking long time. Like, almost ever since people started thinking about thinking. Right? Like, where does behavior come from? How does your brain work? How does how are these things how are these things connected? Are the mind and the body separate things? All of these kind of questions are things that originally philosophers, because in fact, everything starts with philosophy. So universities used to just teach philosophy and theology. And then eventually when something gets mature enough, it leaves philosophy. That's how everything happens. So the first thing that leaves is physics and then chemistry. Biology, psychology, all that kind of thing. So it's really, it's been thought about by philosophers since forever. That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, physicians, of course, think about these things because from a clinical standpoint, it makes sense to worry about maybe you've got some kind of problem behavior. So you might have some kind of organic cause. So maybe if you can figure that out, you can help someone. It's also just an, it's just an interesting question. Um, psychologists, of course, have thought about this because psychology is the scientific study of behavior and cognition. So if you're interested in behavior and cognition, you're very often a psychologist. And neuroscientists, neuroscience is kind of a new name for something we used to call physiological psychology. Um, the cool thing about neuroscience, though, now is that it's not just people doing physiological psychology. It's also people doing things with petri dishes. It's also people doing things, and neurons, not just petri dishes. It's not just people just looking at petri dishes. That's not science. That's just looking at dishes. Anyway, tough room. Um, so 
there are people that do that kind of, there's like molecular neuroscience, right? People looking at gene expression. There are people looking at behavioral neuroscience, which is looking at how changes or differences in neuroanatomy, neurochemistry, etc., affect behavior. There are people who do what we call wet neuroscience, which is, well, it's called wet neuroscience because inside here, and it's wet in here. Gross. I've seen it, it's gross. <laughs> the one time that I was involved in, directly involved in, a, in an experiment that, where we had to do, do operations on rat brains, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, didn't, uh, went home. Went home. Uh, figured the guys who were doing the operations knew what they were doing. Oh, they seemed to. Oh, okay. I'm glad people do it. But then there's, you can do behavioral neuroscience, in fact, without literally ever getting inside an animal's head or a person's head because you can do things with scanning techniques, things like MRI, things like PET scan, CAT scan. But you can also just do things really clever things if you design cool enough behavioral experiments. So you can present a stimulus to just one visual field, then you know it's only going to go to the, the opposite. So if you present a stimulus just to the left visual field, it's only go, gonna go to the right part of the brain first. The left and right visual field will only go to the left part of the brain because your eyes are wired contralaterally. So you can actually do behavioral neuroscience without literally ever getting inside a brain. You have to know about brains and nervous systems. Right? So people have been studying these things forever. We have to define a couple of terms. And by the way, as an aside, uh, typically I wouldn't do this. I hate when people say, well, first we must define our terms. When you're talking to somebody, usually for me that's a, an indication that I'm just going to leave the room because I think you're an idiot. But really, this is important stuff, so now I'm going to say that I'm an idiot. You see what I did there? So we have to define brain behavior. Now, the thing is, that those sound pretty easy to define in a fluid mind. Because these different sets of people, and there's others, as well, of course, as well, their approaches to putting brain behavior together have partially been affected by how they define these terms. Seems to me. All right, questions so far? Make sense? Okay. Recognize Pinky in the Brain, great cartoon? Yes. Yeah, good. My references aren't quite too old yet. Close, though. Close. <laughs> I do remember watching this with my daughter when she was, and she's 25. I remember watching it with my daughter. And she's a behavioral neuroscientist. Ah. So there you go, see? You start them young, and they eventually cite your work. It's all part of my plan. Oh, it's not going to work now? See? See? Okay. Well, first of all, what is a brain? It's a thing you can kick, and you shouldn't kick brains. But what I mean by that is it's something you can touch. It's a thing. It's a, it's a thing you can touch. <laughs> no other way to say that. Um, so it's an actual physical thing. A buddy of mine, Rob, uh, went to grad school with, and we're 
pretty good friend still, and uh, he's a prof at uh, Emory University in Atlanta. And he always says, if you can't kick it, it ain't real. So it's something that you can touch. It's something that's an actual physical thing. Unlike this thing, which is a piece of crap. Um, so is it? A, it's like a tissue. I don't mean like a, you know when you blow your nose into. You could blow your nose into a brain. Again, that would be weird. Do that on your own time. Things have taken a dark turn already. I'm just saying. Um, or an organ. Those are terms, by the way, that mean almost nothing <laughs> scientifically. They mean something. We all know what they mean. But they don't really mean a lot. Right? <coughs> Actually, um, does, anybody, gee, does anybody here have the internet? Look up a definition for brain, like a dictionary.com. Just somebody, because you're going to have to read it too. So don't, you, you, you say you have it, I guess, okay, read what it says. Who's got one? Anybody have it yet? Anybody? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? There's Bueller references. That's 20, 35 years of this movie. Yeah, please. An organ of soft, nervous tissue contained in the skull of vertebrates, functioning as the coordinating center of sensation and intellectual and nervous activity. Okay. That's not bad. Except it says vertebrates, and inverts have nervous systems, and we could say they have brains. It's... When you say in the skull, that's vertebrates. That's true. But inverts have nervous systems. It's not bad. Dictionary definitions, as a rule, kind of suck. That one is not awful. It is non-awful. Dictionary definitions of, of, of terms that are used as technical terms or terms of art, they tend not to be good. That's not a bad one, though. I'm, I'm happy with that. That's good. So is it just the wrinkly thing in your head? Yeah, technically, I guess, yes. It's technically correct, which, of course, is the best kind of correct. In Toronto, anybody? Okay. So, yeah, I guess that's one way we could define it, sure. Sure. Now, the thing is, you can't do certain behaviors without a spinal cord. So we're also going to have to care about behavior, too, right? So. Without a spinal cord, you can't walk. Like, if I sever your spinal cord, I wouldn't do this, because that would be you know, a crime against humanity. But So people break their necks, and their spinal cord gets severed. They're, they're, they aren't walking. They aren't moving, depending on where an injury happens. They may not be moving at all, except for their face, because it's controlled by different set of nerves. Huh. They, they, they can think, the, co the cognitive part, the sensation and perception from our definition there. Some sensation and perception, there's no touch, no sensation of touch. No heat, no cold, no pain. But there'd be vision and hearing, smell. They can live rich cognitive lives, but literally have no, literally no control over their body. Stephen Hawking, who just died, because uh, he had ALS, I mean, he obviously had a rich intellectual life, but he couldn't move. Except, you know, really one of his eyes that he used to select things on a, on a, a computer display so he could uh, communicate. So intellectually, Stephen Hawking, no problems, but, you know, 
mobility, all kinds of other stuff. Not good, right? So we kind of have to think about the spinal column too. We kind of have to think about the spinal column too. That, by the way, is a quote from the worst Star Trek episode ever, Spock's Brain. <laughs> Literally the worst Star Trek episode ever. And I mean, there's a lot of contenders because there's been a lot of Star Trek. But in that episode, I, I, the, the part, so these women come and steal Spock's brain to, to run their space station because, you know, it's, that makes sense. So Star Trek was really pretty sexist, right? And just, you know, by definition, women are wearing skirts that are actually at their navels. I mean, it, it's really pretty bad. But the thing that really hits me in that episode is when Captain Kirk says, he comes, they beam down to the planet with Spock that they now are controlling with a remote because <laughs> his brain's gone. And, you know, he's like, you stole Spock's brain. And the woman says, brain, brain, brain. You use words I do not understand. So, of course, she's stupid. But the best part is he goes, where are the leaders? Where are the men? Uh, which is, <laughs> wow. And that was progressive in 1966, or 3068, probably season three. I'm such a loser. So, so the definition of brain really just means the thing in the head. I have to concentrate not on the brain itself, but on the cerebellum, the spinal column, and the brain. The cerebellum is often thought of as a separate thing from the brain. The cerebellum is, a, I should have brought my brain with me. Like, I have a model. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> Marker. I can draw a picture, but it's not going to be very good, but I'm going to draw one anyway. So, so if the human brain looks a lot like an army helmet, at the base of it, there's this sort of, you're lucky your brain doesn't look like this. So there's this other bit here, so it's all wrinkly and such. And this is much more wrinkly, and then here's your thing. Brain stem. The cerebellum is separate, like it's a separate thing. So we have to consider it too, because there's stuff that happens there, that's all neurons in there, there's, and glial cells. There's stuff that happens there that also helps control behavior. And if we want to relate brain to behavior, we have to get the spinal column, the brain, the cerebellum. Cerebellum is Latin for cere, so little, little brain, that's all it means. It was in high school, we, there was a girl in our, one of our classes, her name was Sarah Bell, and we all called her Sarah Bell, which says something I think about my friends in my high school. Um, <laughs> that we knew some girl in that, I mean, that's kind of cool. So the brain, the spinal column, and the cerebellum make up what's called, oh, sorry, let's, before I say that, so... I want to talk a little bit about something called the mind-body problem. I mentioned that at the beginning. So the mind-body problem is we have a mind, right? And we have our bodies. And they feel separate, don't they? I mentioned this the other day. Your mind and your body feel quite separate. My mind seems like it's something that just exists and it is a, I mean, I know that it's in my brain, but it doesn't feel like it's in my brain, whereas like I know where my hand is. Is that me? Never know, you know, 
you know, sometimes my son sends me a text or something, and it's like, hey, Dad, I, you know, like, I'm having a bad day. What do I do, son? I'm like, I think I got a call once from his school. John's coughing up blood. And I'm like, well, okay, class is over. Turned out he had a nosebleed. It was all it was, but... <laughs> You didn't really need to know that. All I'm saying is, sometimes when you're a parent, you get a phone call and you gotta go. So our minds and bodies feel separate. In fact, when you ask the general public, most of them think your mind and your body are separate. I'm not going to ask you to say if you think your mind and your body are separate because you now know that I think it's stupid to think they're separate and then you'll feel silly. But how is it possible that they can be separate? They can't be, right? It's literally impossible. So philosophically, it's been this big question, right, for forever. Tech, we divide, we divide the study of behavior and cognition, psychology, as a separate thing from other parts of biology. Yeah, I just said it. I think psychology is part of biology. Yeah, please. Wouldn't that mean that free will isn't a thing? Yeah, it would. Of course it would. Yeah, you know, you know free will. You feel like you do. That's all that really matters. <laughs> yeah. No, you feel like you have free will. Or free willy, which of course is that fine film. But, okay, let me... Is, is, I'm glad you did this. I wouldn't expect you to have that, but we can play. That's good. Okay, so if I'm just going to talk about this logically first. If the idea of science is what? Prediction and control, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to predict what happens. That's what we do, right? Doesn't matter what. You're, you're a physicist, a chemist, a biologist, whatever. You're trying to predict the future. Right? So you're trying to say that X, which is the cause, makes Y. That's the effect. Yes? That's what we're trying to do. Now, do we, you know, in, in something like, something like, say, biological, like, you know, living systems are complicated things. So it gets very difficult to say, this always makes this happen. Right? It's difficult to say that, except it very, with very exceedingly simple things. But you think about something like psychology, for example, um, where the more fuzzy things get, dealing with complex human behavior, let's say, um, we're never going to explain all the variants, or it's very difficult. Okay? But if we say X causes one, that's what we're trying to do with experiments, right? So if I give you um, half the room, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, give you uh, uh, two shots of vodka. I'm not. That would be probably it's a little early in the day. <laughs> Though, as we used to say in Newfoundland, sun's over the air, I'm somewhere, my son. Um, so half the class gets two shots of vodka. The other half gets, uh, we'll give you two shots of not vodka. And you say, how are we going to control that? You have vodka, you know, well, you know what? Um, I'm going to put so much peppermint in it, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. That's actually how these experiments are done. So you don't know that you're in the placebo group. You, every, I tell everybody you've had vodka. And yet, literally, you can't tell the difference. Okay. 
You don't do this, by the way, you gotta make sure we get the side effects. They're like this, they aren't non-drinkers. Non That's mean. My religion says I can't drink. Well, too bad, you signed up. Uh, that's not a good thing. I've got a liver problem. Well, you signed up now, too bad. Take your life in your own hands. Read the small print next time. So anyway, now we're going to do a little memory experiment. I'm going to give you a list of words, same words, and I'm going to see how many you recall, and you know what's going to happen. You guys recall more words than you guys do, because you guys have had a couple shots of vodka. Okay? It's a very reliable effect. OK. But if we say we have, so that's the X and the Y. If we say we have free will, we'll call free will Z. We now can't ever do this, because it may be that Z causes Y. It may be that free will did it. And if free will did it, we may as well all just quit. Science is over. Let's all go write poems. Poems are great, by the way. Poems are great. My wife's a visual artist. Let's all go make paintings. This wonderful stuff. I'm glad people do it. But if you think there's free will, you've got you to stop doing psychology. Quit. Just quit. Because you're, you're lying to yourself. Now, does it feel like you have free will? Yeah. You know why it feels like you have free will? Because there's no way we're ever going to know all the variables that cause why. We have to know so much stuff Right? It's also a good thing to, 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 to it evolutionarily make some sense to convince yourself you have free will, because then you make choices and you take responsibility for things you do, all that great stuff, right? But if the mind and body aren't separate, though you could, you still could say there's free, there's no there is free will if you think the mind and the body are the same thing, but you'd have a lot of trouble doing it. That's in the traditional sense, the mind, mind and body being separate in people allows us to say that we have free will. Right? Descartes loved that. We'll talk about Descartes probably next time. We will talk about Descartes. So yeah, I mean, I don't think we have free will. I think most, if you nail down most psychologists, ask because most, most of us don't think about those things. We go, I don't know, probably not. So? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Because that means you have a free agent. And who made, you know, then you got the free agent who's sitting in there pushing buttons or something, pulling levers. It's like uh, Terminator. And I always wondered why Arnold needed the output into his eye. Shouldn't he just know that that's not, that's not Sarah Connor? You know, like, shouldn't he know that? Why does he have to have a little homunculus back there telling him what to do? Okay. Yeah, please. Um, just in thinking about that, having worked with children with ADHD, sure. if somebody was to subscribe to the theory that there's free will, then they would believe that their impulsivity is by choice. Oh, you is could. No, you could. But I mean, what I'm saying also is that it could be that they just have not less free will, but there's other stuff's messed up. So it doesn't necessarily mean what you're saying. I see what you're saying, but I don't think it necessarily means that. And I think most people that believe that there's free will are people of goodwill that don't 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 think that. Everything is somebody's fault. <laughs> you know, so. So we have free will based on the limitations of how our well, we have free will. neurons are we, going? Or? We feel like we have free will. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right? Like I can do this. Was that, there was a whole bunch of variables that made that happen. My past reinforcement history, my genetics, the interaction of those things, all kinds of other stuff. 
So Dave, is that why it's really difficult for people in the medical community to accept the fact that certain things are diseases or disorders? Disease and disorder are weird words and I don't... You don't like those ones? No, I don't care about them. What I'm saying is that a lot of people think they're weird words. Some people say disease or disorder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my son has autism. Uh, is it a disease? I think disease are... I was thinking diseases are things you catch. Then again, my dad died of brain cancer. That's a disease. You can catch it. Right? Uh, so. Well, brain and behavior and addiction, then. People say that's a disease. People do. We get to, wait till we get to the stuff on, on drugs and behavior. Okay. Yeah. Because there's, the disease model's kind of a, a little weak. But yeah, it's fascinating stuff when you think about these things. See, this is why people would think about this stuff. And it's cool. But this has led to this mind-body problem that psychologists basically have just said, well, you shouldn't waste your... Move on. Right? You can think you have free will. I don't care. Go ahead. Go ahead. Try putting that in an article. You can try to get it, get it published. See how, that, how far that gets you. Because it's hard. How could you measure it? Right? How could you measure it? All right. Now, I talked about brain. I talked about central nervous system, really, basically. Okay, so that's your brain, your spinal column, your cerebellum. That's the CNS. That's what we've talked about so far. The communication here is neural. What does that mean? It means that we are talking about electrochemical messages. Within neurons, we're talking about electricity, basically-ish. It's not quite that simple call it electrochemical there, at the synaptic level, the connection between two neurons, there we're talking about chemical mes uh, messengers, right? Or transmitters. The thing is, remember I jumped over there, jumped off the thing. Um, there are other neurons throughout my body that make me move that aren't part of the central nervous system. That's, that's the peripheral nervous system. So that's Nerves that make you move and that send, send, uh, send uh, messages of movement, uh, pain, heat, cold, and touch. They send them up here for analysis. The communication there, again, is neural. Okay. So now we've got a whole other system, the peripheral nervous system, we have to worry about too. So now, not just brain, spinal column, cerebellum. Now we have to worry about all these other neurons that are connected to muscles and to skin. Wow, okay, so there's lots of them. All right. Communication again here is neural still, so it's still electrochemical. It's still electrochemical. Okay, so how does this work? How do these things go together? So you think about something simple like a bicep curl. It's very simple behavior, right? So the muscle needs an agonist and an antagonist. An agonist makes the muscle contract. An antagonist stops it. Okay. So what happens is there are, let's so left arm, so right 
part of my brain right about there, sends a message exceedingly slowly, though it feels instantaneous. And the weird thing is, oftentimes when those decisions are made, and you know how the decisions you make seem to be instantaneous? They actually, there's a lag of about 400 milliseconds. What? Almost half a second. Which is mind-boggling, because you never notice it. It's not in consciousness, but it's there. It's completely measurable. Very cool. So, somewhere up around here, messages get sent down through my spinal column, right about there, down to here, and neurons on my left bicep that synapse onto muscles release a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which causes <coughs> my bicep to contract. And all that time, by the way, that acetylcholine now has all been being broken down by acetylcholinesterase. It's a, an enzyme. And if it doesn't get broken down, um, things are bad. <laughs> That's how a lot of nerve gases work. Things like sarin. You know, so it's bad stuff. Been watching that Jack Ryan. You watch the Jack Ryan series on, 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 on Amazon? Pretty good. They killed people with sarin gas in episode five. Spoiler alert. <laughs> It's a show about terrorists. They're going to use nerve gas. I mean, it's fine. Okay, so it's up like that. And also, there are muscles, or sorry, there are neurons here that, uh, that are sensory neurons that are detecting the contraction of my bicep. I mean, eventually, stop. And I stop. And then I release. That's exceedingly simple behavior, right? So motor neurons send messages to the bicep to curl up, and sensory neurons detect when it's curled enough, when to stop, and then you release. This is something that happens with literally the use of, in a human, probably millions of neurons. Literally millions of them. Pretty simple behavior, but it's millions of neurons. It's probably millions. Yeah, let's go with millions. It's probably not hundreds of thousands, so let's go to the next step up. So it's probably millions. And as I said, it feels instantaneous. I decide to do it, and it happens, but actually, that's not how it works, which is mind boggling. It still kind of blows me away, but I've seen too much data to say it's not, it doesn't work that way. So. Okay. Now, let's think about another situation. Let's talk, I'm, I like um, things about animal behavior. So let's talk about moths and bats. Moths have ears too. That's a nuctoid moth. It has ears on its thorax. I don't know what it calls. Oh, bug behavior, quite a bit, but I don't know what bug. It's kind of thing you learn like boys get into when they're in grade four. That sharks, dinosaurs. It's pretty much, right? Girls are planning future careers. Boys are like, ah, sharks, dinosaurs, or bugs? Which one? <laughs> it's basically, it's true. It's still true, yes? Okay, good. So, but I think it's either thorax or abdomen, or I don't know. It's part of a body of a bug. Who cares? They're stupid bugs. I hate them. Um, <laughs> don't hate love. 
Except for wasps and hornets. Those are evil animals and they should all be destroyed. <laughs> right? Okay. So it's on their abdomen they're here. Not on their heads. But it works the same way, actually, as ours. It's, it's a tympanic membrane, it's skin, and it vibrates. So it, because it changes the sound pressure, uh, sorry, air pressure, which is what we call sound pressure level. Uh, so it's exactly, it works really the same way our ear does, which makes sense. How else would you detect changes in air pressure except the membrane that moves back and forth, right? So, in fact, here's another diagram. Uh, so, okay, we don't have big air sacs in our ears because that would be weird, but tympanic membrane, really right on the, on the skin of the animal, or skin, just little bits beside its exoskeleton opens up there. And then we've got two neurons, A1 and A2. Okay. Wow. Two neurons. Now, yeah, that's in the right ear and the left ear. Now, they're not frequency sensitive. Frequency is the, the higher the frequency of a sound, we, we detect that as higher pitch. Right? So it was low and then high. Oh. That was it's all the singing you're ever gonna get from me. And even that much, some of you I can see are sickened. That makes sense. <laughs> My little brother's a record producer and an engineer and a, and a musician and he's famous and such, and I'm just I I'm not. He also knows more about auditory psychophysics than I do. Neither of high school. And it has to know that stuff. So, oh, how is this done? Well, what you do is you take this neuron and you put it in the petri dish and you subject it to, well, you take the whole ear mechanism and then you subject this thing to sand. You can do it that way or you can do it, that's what you do it today probably. Well, this was done originally in the 1950s. They placed a microelectrode across the membrane of the A1 cell and then played different sounds, higher and higher frequency, to detect when it would fire, when it would say that a signal. Okay? So here's a moth, noctoid moth. See, like I said, they don't really have, they call them thoracic ganglia, so it must be thorax. Um, but these, Ganglia are not unlike brains, they just have a whole bunch of them. That's why I said, you know, invertebrates, well, they don't have a single brain, they have many sort of nodes, right? And those of you guys have taken invertebrate biology have seen this kind of stuff before. Okay, this, this looks much clearer over here, right? Don't worry about that. So what happens, as you can see here, is the, there's the ear, and it then synapses almost basically directly onto muscles of the opposite wing. Okay. Does this make sense so far? You good? Okay. Here's, here's the results of, this, of the, these experiments uh, done, as I said, in 1956. Um, okay. We play a sound, and the higher this graph goes, that means the louder the sound is. So it's 
So the A2 receptor, notice that it doesn't matter. These two loudnesses, no difference really. Here this is firing. So there's really no relationship. Okay. By the way, these are really high frequency. So A1 is responsive to intensity. In fact, the frequency of these sound pulses is about 112,000 hertz. You hear up to, none of you do, but maybe 20,000 hertz is the highest a human can hear. Mine's at about 12,000 because I'm in my 50s and wear headphones and listen to loud music all the time and I live in Western industrialized society, so my hearing's basically shot. Many of you guys might be around 16,000, 17,000 hertz. That's a really high pitch sound. You can't hear 120,000 hertz. But, see, that's what bats send out when they're trying to detect where prey are. Bats navigate by sonar. They send out sonar, they send out pulses, and they detect how long it takes for it to bounce back. Right? They detect the echo. And bats can paint as rich and detailed a picture with sound as we do with our eyes. Bats can actually be in a completely dark room. I mean light tight, completely dark, and you could put up piano wire. And they just fly around, no problem. And they can't see, there's no way they're seeing because there's no light. But they do it by sending out pulses of ultrasound. They're using sonar. And you have to do this in pulses because you have to send it out and wait for it to bounce back. And bats can tell the difference between... Now, let's guess. How, how Do you think... If we could sit there and get trained, you could do a one-second difference in an echo. You wouldn't need to be trained to do that at all, right? You think you could do a tenth of a second? Probably with some training, right? Probably if you really practiced. Right? You probably could Okay, so that's, you couldn't do a hundredth of a second, there's no way, right? I think we'd all agree on that. Now, a bat can do this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's nine zeros. Uh, yeah, so they, they, they're, they're, they, they're, they, they, yeah. <laughs> they can just sense the world by saying. So it's all just, just sound. Very cool. A lot of that work was done in Canada, actually. Uh, York University, the bat stuff, the original bat stuff. Uh, it's amazing stuff. So bats can actually detect where prey items are in complete darkness by sending out pulses of sound. Oh, look, pulses. The A1 receptor responds better to pulses of sound than to constant sounds, actually. Ooh. Who do you think the number one predator is of nuptoid moths? You think it might be bats? Yeah. Evolution's an arm, arms race, man. It's a freaking arms race. Just break something. So you get more firing, then, with a closer bat. Right? So the closer the bat is, that means the sound's louder. Sound that none of us can hear. A moth can hear it. It's interesting to think when you walk up to a moth and you're talking to it, it can't hear you. 
Hey, moth, go to hell. Stop flying at me. You can't even hear you. Pretty amazing. The, because uh, I always think, you ever seen the movie Hunt for in October? Right? Looking for a submarine. And they got the sonar. It's like my favorite movie ever. And when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, uh, we went to the, you know, the sonogram. Where they do the thing with the, and you look and you see your unborn child, and it's the coolest thing in the world. Right? So the first time we got this, we went for the, my wife, the daughter, she's pregnant with our daughter. They're doing the thing, and they're sending out these it's sonar. It's exactly the same technology, except not nearly as accurate as that. And I, I looked at the, uh, the technician, and I said, are there any sonar contacts, Mr. Kamenov? And which is from the movie. And the guy just looked at me, and I said, don't do that again. <laughs> so the next time we had a, so seven years later, she's pregnant, and we're going in to do it again, you know, and she says, you are not to say, are there any sonar contacts, Mr. Kamenov? I said, I promise you I will not say that. So and I see it's all excited. And I say, give me one ping for silly. One ping only. And technically I didn't lie. Kind of a dick move though, right? Um, so bats are way better than submarines. Bats are way better than those the sonogram things, you know, the ultrasound. They're incredible. Moths, if they didn't weren't able to detect these pulses, there wouldn't be any more moths. <laughs> they wouldn't have passed their genes on. They'd all be dead. So A2, there's A2. It fires very quickly with a really loud sound. Sorry, yeah, there's A2. Really loud sounds. The bat must be very, very close. Okay, so what happens? If A1 on the left fires, this wing beats faster, because it's hooked up directly, this wing beats faster than this wing, and I start to turn until they beat in unison, and I fly away from the moth. The moth directs its course 180 degrees away from the bat. Flies away from the bat, directly away from where the bat is coming from. jump on that's cool. But you know, they're not always gonna win the moths, because then bats wouldn't eat moths anymore. By the way, if you don't think this is cool, you have literally no idea what the word cool is. So the A2 neuron basically turns off all inhibition in the, in the moth nervous system. You know when you, you probably don't know this, but you must have heard, when you cut a chicken's head off, it still runs around? Okay. That's because a lot of the, what's happening in your brain, in your brain or in a, in, a, in a moth, doesn't matter who, is inhibition. It's stopping circuits from firing. It's like the classic thing when you, if you bump into somebody, there's part of you that wants to punch him in the face. But inhibition stops that. And you do this, sorry. Right? 
And that's why, for example, people when they drink alcohol literally get more belligerent even though it's a depressant. Why? Because we have inhibited the inhibition. So when I bump into you, that thing that normally would go, just don't, don't do anything. That's gone. And you go, what's your problem? <laughs> right? So what's happening here is now with its last second evasive maneuvers. The bat is just flying around on a moth like this, and then it's like all over the place, hopefully getting away. Oh, um, there's also the bee neuron, which I haven't discussed, which detects if the, if the wings are up, over, like up, or down. When they're down, they're actually covering the ear. So it it's a way to, for the, 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 the system to detect if the moth is above or below. So it actually can detect we're in three-dimensional space. three-dimensional space where the bat is. A moth's nervous system is doing vector math. Because that's what that is, isn't it? Direction and distance. Dude, <laughs> it's really cool. Also, it seems really, really sort of cognitive, doesn't it? It sounds like a submarine. Plotting its course away from the enemy or towards the enemy, whatever, using sound. And the other submarine is detecting where it is and moving away. And we do that with really expensive computers and highly trained sonar technicians and weapons officers and all that other stuff. And moths are like, yeah, I got, I got four neurons. I'm good. No worries. I can detect where things are and fly away from them. I like to see a moth try to build a submarine, but still... It's impressive. See, it looks really cognitive. <laughs> it's not, man. It's just a, you could build this from parts at Radio Shack. I'm sorry, it's no longer Radio Shack. It's sourced by Second City. Uh, so, it's amazing. Like, if you know a little electronics, you could probably build this. That's... Right. Questions about that? Isn't that neat? Yeah, it's neat, right? Every class I teach, that comes up. It literally doesn't, the only classes that come up in is like advanced univariate statistics. The only class I teach with this does not come up. Because I think it's the greatest thing ever. Like it's better than world peace. Because <laughs> this at least exists. <laughs> so, now the other thing, these are all cabinet. By the way, you know the way that neuron works in a, in a moth? It's the same way neurons work in you. So, the cool thing is we can use animal models. They use the same, even the same neurotransmitters, the same chemical vesters. Very cool. Very cool. Different number of uh, genes, right? Different number of chromosomes in the nucleus, but the mechanics of it are the same. Once this evolved, <coughs> there was no other way. Nothing else worked. This, this is a pretty damn good system. Now, we also have the autonomic nervous system. The communication here is quite a bit different than it is in the CNS and the PNS. It, is, it involves chemical messengers, but, and in fact, some of those chemical messengers are, this, are also neurotransmitters. And when they're released in central nervous system or peripheral nervous system, we call them neurotransmitters. When they're released in the autonomic nervous system, we call them hormones. The way they work is similar in that there are receptors on organs. Okay, so, and then usually these things get... These chemical messengers get released onto organs, and the receptors cause certain genes to be expressed. 
Okay, it's changed changed the states. So this is this is chemical. This is just purely chemical. This isn't electrochemical. So it's slower. The autonomic nervous system is slow. So the hormones are secreted in the bloodstream by ductless glands. And the, the pituitary gland, that's the master gland, and it runs all the other ones. Um, the pituitary controls the relose. The relose? Relose isn't a word. Sounds like it should be, though. It's a perfectly cromulent word. Simpsons? Nothing? I guess, actually, the Simpsons is, is older than almost everyone in this room, except me. So... So it controls the release of pitocin and oxytocin, which start labor. So that when, if you get induced, they actually just put these hormones into a drip in, in, in your arm and you get induced into labor. Um, and you might say, well, that's not really complicated behavior. First of all, if you've ever had a kid or watched somebody have a kid, there's a lot of behaving going on. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of behaving going on. It's serious stuff. It's something to watch. I'm sure it's also something to experience. I'm glad I never experienced it. Because the whole time I was sitting there going, how is that even possible? That can't be a thing. That's no, no. You never prepared for it. You know, because you learn things in school. When your teacher in grade four was very, uh, very, you know, turned red and started talking about pee-pees and wee-wees. But you never prepared for it. <laughs> And there's a lot of behavior, but it's still pretty. It's it's primitive behavior. Other mammals have babies, except for platypuses, which are weird and probably shouldn't exist. <laughs> they lay eggs. But so mammals had give birth. So before there were people, there was giving birth. So it's pretty primitive. Primitive just means old, evolutionarily old, isn't? There's no value judgment involved in the word primitive whatsoever. Okay. So when you hear someone say primitive in this kind of context, it's not like I'm saying. And it's not nearly as advanced and excellent as it's not what it means, okay? Okay, let's talk about some more complicated behavior. The effects of testosterone on spatial ability. So if I was to take a rat, first of all, well, back up. There are male rats, on average, perform better than female rats on spatial tasks. And a spatial task I can show you is one called the A-arm radial maze. It's a pretty simple maze. Looks like this. It's got a central platform, and then eight arms that radiate out the spokes of the wheel. He said, literally quoting the first article that describes an A-arm maze. So you put food at the end of the arms, okay? And the rat's job is to get the food at the end of the arms. And I know what we would all do. I would start at one of them and go left or go right. That's easy. The rats don't do that. They go in a haphazard fashion, but they're very good at this. So they'll typically make seven choices if their first eight choices are correct. They won't revisit arms. Okay? They're very good at this. All right. Uh, male rats get to asymptotes, so they don't get any better, faster than female rats on average. So if you have a batch of male rats and a batch of female rats, the males do it better on average. Okay. Well, actually, it turns out that it's not being male per se. It's the fact that you have testosterone. So where does testosterone come from? Well, testes, right? So, whoa. 
It just went ahead a thousand. Oh, I leaned on the thing because I'm an idiot. <laughs> okay, there we are. Good. So, what you do when the rats are born is you castrate them. Some of them. Half of them. Half the male rats you castrate. And you got a batch of female rats, half of them you overectomize. Okay, so you've got male and female, genetically male, genetically female rats, half of which have no gonads, and the other half do. Okay? What we're going to do now is we're going to find out what happens so when they grow up. So the rats that have testes are better than all three other groups. Okay. So it's not about being male, it's about making testosterone. And in fact, it's about making testosterone. The biggest effect is making testosterone when they're, when, they're, when they're small, when they're developing. We know that because what you can do now is you can take the female rats who you've overectomized and give them testosterone, and then they're as good as male rats on, these, on this maze test. You can take the male rats that you've castrated and you can give them testosterone when they're developing, and they're as good as the male rats that haven't been castrated. Okay. So now you think, well, it's rats. Rats are stupid. Rats are sexist, obviously. What about people? Well, actually, it's a pretty well-demonstrated thing that men are better than women on spatial tasks, on average. Okay? On average. So I couldn't pick a guy out of the room. I couldn't say, well, uh, you or you or me, and say, I'm better than you or you or you. There's no way you can do that. It doesn't work like that. How many guys do we have in here doing nothing? Yeah, we probably have guys, so if we did that on average, if we did a task that none of us have done before, because now we couldn't, you couldn't say something like, because you can't have something that's a lot of, uh, what's the word, there's a lot of experience, right? You couldn't say catching a baseball is very spatial, but the thing is more boys know how to play baseball than girls. So it's not fair, right? It was experience. So we have to find something that women and men have not done in their lives that's a spatially loaded task. Okay, you know what we can do? What if we, took, what if we had people throw in uh, at a target, someone at a target? You might think, well, again, it's like darts and things. More guys have done that than women. Let's do it underhanded. Okay, you don't do that. Still, okay, what you also have to do is wear prisms on your eyes that shift the world over 45 degrees. That makes it really hard. And both men and women are quarter boys. <laughs> you learn very quickly. It takes about 20 minutes and you're fine. You're hitting the bullseye. It's done with a, a Nerf ball and a Velcro target, okay? So you throw these balls and you just measure. It's beautiful because you can actually measure exactly how close you are to the bullseye. Okay. Great. Now, here's something interesting. We can't be doing the same thing we do with the rats because that's kind of unethical. We probably shouldn't even give people shots of testosterone. However, unlike men, women's hormonal environment changes monthly. I don't know if you guys know this. I'm saying this to the guys, the women know this. Um, why don't we test women at different parts of their menstrual period? 
let's see when they have when did women have the most estrogen in their menstrual period? Somebody's got to know that. Go ahead. Pardon me? Yeah. They're ovulating. And in fact, women who are ovulating do worse on this task than women who are not ovulating. By the way, this isn't an excuse, guys, to say you can't drive, you might be ovulating. That's being an idiot. Also, women can't use that excuse. I can't drive tonight, I'm ovulating. So, I'm ovulating. A little, bit, a little bit of ovulation. Can't be driving. <laughs> uh, also, uh, I can't put things away. I don't know where to put them. My spatial sense is gone. <laughs> I can't do that either, okay? So you can't. Use it as some kind of excuse. I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know how fast I was going. I was ovulating. You can't. That can't be a thing. Okay. So that's pretty interesting. Um, now, you might think, oh. White male guy talking about how superior males are. You know what you can do? You can do the same thing except with something um, verbal. Women outscore men on verbal tasks. On average. Again, we couldn't take all the one woman here, couldn't say take you, and you would say you're better at spelling me. But if we took all the women and all the men, we could. And there are hormonal effects there too. And they're based on effort. Sorry, I didn't spell that right. I, was ov- I wasn't ovulating. Right? So you can't get it. Not a good excuse. Oh, you've been mistaken your grammar. Ovulating? Um, <laughs> these effects are so small that they're really not important in daily life. But they're real effects. Right? So they don't affect performance on a task uh, to the point where it matters a lot or at all in daily life, but they're real effects. So they, you should never use these as excuses to say, women shouldn't be fighter pilots. Because what if they're ovulating and they're looking for planes? Be an idiot. Men shouldn't teach English because they can't spell. Be an idiot. But the effects are there. And they're, they're hormonally driven. Interesting stuff, right? So that's complicated behavior compared to rats on a maze. Questions so far? By the way, one of the ways you can improve female performance on spatial tasks, here's another one. Here's, you could use the, the throwing the, the ball thing was something was used. I, I, just, I know about that work by Elizabeth Hampson. But you can do this. Uh, okay, so there's an R, right? Then you put it like that, and your task is to say, is that a letter or not? And what you have to do, you know how long it takes you, um, depending on how many degrees it's rotated, it takes you, that, that's uh, how, uh, that, that's proportional to how long it takes you to reply it's a letter or not. No one gets that wrong, by the way. But it takes women longer to do this than men. On the other, oh, sorry, you can also have some look like this. So you got to rotate that up and go, oh, that's not a letter. Again, it's a small effect. It's reliable, but... So it shows a cool thing, but it's not something that you should ever extrapolate and say that women can't do something or men can't do something. Because that's just being that's that's just being a jerk. And, you can it, and it's wrong. However, the effects are real. But one of the ways you can mitigate these effects, by the way, uh, is uh, you get women to play Call of Duty for two hours. And I'm dead serious. It's a spatially loaded task, it's practice. 
There's work by Ian Spence. Uh, this is about 10 years old, maybe a little more than that. He had women play Call of Duty 2, so it's got to be at least 10 years old. Yeah, probably more like 15. Uh, for two hours, and then he did this mental rotation task, and women scored equal with men. Because it's just practicing your spatial skills. Right? Neat. Video games are good. <laughs> and bad. They're just things like everything else. Won't somebody please think of the children? I am. They are, should be playing video games. Okay, the study, by the way, of hormones and behavior in the brain is called psychoneuroendocrinology. The only reason I have that written there is it's probably the longest word I know the definition of. And it's also something you can just drop into conversation. Right? Just say that word, impress people, make you seem pretty cool. So if somebody says to you, for example, right, if you want to seem like, let's say your parents are paying for your education, let's say that, that's cool. And they want to hear that you're doing important stuff. So they say, what did you do today? You say, well, you probably learned a little about psychoneuroendocrinology. You don't even know what that word means, do you? That's, what you, that's your money right there. Money well spent. And what was that the definition of again? Uh, it's the study of a brain behavior and hormones. And I'm literally never going to ask you that on a test. Really. I just like saying it. Okay. Brain and behavior. Now we have to define behavior. But, but that's the brain part. Not a whole course. There's a lot more. But uh, if any questions on that? You good so far? Okay. So if you thought the definition of brain was a bit of amorphous, I, I got a definition of, of, of behavior. This comes, I think I got, where did I get this? Might have been dictionary.com, might have been the OED, not sure. Behavior, the manner of conducting oneself. Oh, behave. That kind of behavior. <laughs> behave yourself, young man. David Richard Broadback. My mom says literally nothing like that. But that's my mom impression. Hi, Mom. Sometimes she listens. Anything that an organism does involving action and response to stimulation. The response of an individual group or species to its environment. Behavioral, or chiefly British, behavioral. Blah, blah, blah. It's actually not bad, that definition. It's not bad either. I'm never going to ask you how to how did the dictionary define behavior. That's just I'm I'm not that guy. I'm a real hard ass about things, but knowing useless facts is not really interesting to me. And that one would be what did I do? What's your favorite movie? <coughs> What's Dave's favorite movie? But I'm never going to ask you that. Like when people say, Do you have any trick questions on your test? It's like, why does anybody have trick questions? To prove they're clever? I know I'm clever. They put letters after my name, they pay me to be clever, for Christ's sakes. Anyway. Sorry, I, I, yeah, trick questions bug me. Now, some questions are tricky, but they're not trick questions. It's different. Okay, so stimuli, we tend to think of those as external things, right? The, the, the sound from the bat. Okay. 
We tend to think of those being external things, but internal things, if you want to go all mind-body on me again, are, can, can have a reaction. Imagine pizza. It's a song by John Lennon. Imagine there's no pizza. Thank you. But if you do, right now, some of you salivated, right? You can't help it, actually. It's Pavlovian conditioning. It's just no big deal. But it did cause a reaction. Now, salivation isn't much of a behavior. But it is something. It's a reaction to a stimulus. And it's an, it's an internal stimulus, though, which is kind of weird, right? It's a little wild, a little weird. There's wild stuff. Some of these jokes, by the way, you are going over everybody's head, and they're literally just for me. Like, I just said something that, to me, and one friend of mine is really funny, and I'm going to post this on the Internet, and he's going to listen to it, and he's, I'm going to say Around 1.13 or so, listen to that part, and he's going to laugh. That was for my friend Mike. Um, so we imagine pizza, we get a reaction. Okay. So it's not... See, stimuli maybe isn't the right word, but it's close. An organism. The plants behave. I mean, they open their flowers, go towards the sun... Uh, you got like Venus flytraps, right? You want to call that behavior? Or you want to call that phototaxis? Or if it's towards the same, or whatever. I, mean, I don't know if I want to call it behavior. Plants are stupid and boring. <laughs> so I tell, I tell Brandon Chant that all the time. Plants are stupid and boring, and you're nothing more than a, a gardener, really. Just a, a, a it's a joke. He knows that we're friends. Like, you can go tell him I said that. It's a joke. Last year in my evaluations, it says, very unprofessional. He makes fun of the biology department. It's like, they're my friends. Friends at a college, not a garden. I think there's a garden. Anyway. I don't know if I call behavior. I just. Uh, but that's, we don't care because we don't care about plants. <laughs> so, and plants don't have nervous systems. Right? There is, yeah, I just, hmm. I, I find it tough calling that behavior, but maybe that definition says it's behavior. What I'm saying is that definition would certainly account for it being behavior. I don't know. So, again, as a rule, dictionary definitions suck at defining a specific term in a field, right? They're good for daily use. That was a, it's a fine definition for daily use. Behavior is some observable reaction that has no obvious substance. You can't touch behavior. You can see its results. But you can't really touch behavior per se. But it's an observable reaction. Right? So if I throw this up, I hope you catch it because it's not mine. Um, that was behavior. We can see the results of that. But you, you wouldn't say what the behavior, but you can't touch the behavior, right? So it's different than the brain thing. I think that's actually something that, that might be in the book. So. It's an action of an organism having cause and function. Is that in that definition? I like that part. By the way, I don't care if you call them doctor. That's, I mentioned that in the, that's just a little joke. 
Just a little PowerPoint humor. Dave. So in the moth and the bat example, uh, the cause is the sound. Because it, oh, or the cause and effect thing is gone, but then the effect is moving away, but the cause is the sound. Now, we could get a little more fine-grained and say the cause is the hepatic membrane moving. We're getting more fine-grained. So the cause is the A1 neuron firing. Yeah? Okay? And the function, what it accomplishes, is the evasion. Okay? So function is what something accomplishes. The cause is what makes something happen. Cause and function are two different things. We often confuse them. So this will include both learned behavior and inherited things. Right? There are behaviors that we do that are pretty much hardwired. Dave, can yes. you put the cause, the cause is the sound, the function is evasion in like a people term? Like behavior of people, I'm not really like. Give me a, give me, give me, give me a, give me a, give me a behavior. I'm not connecting to your moth at all. Okay, so uh, if we talked about the cause of eating, pizza. Let's go, let's go with that. Okay. Uh, okay, so the cause of that is that you are hungry. It made the eating happen. Okay, got it. The function is you're not hungry anymore. It's what accomplished. Okay. Eating yeah. isn't the function? No. That you're not it's what anymore? the eating accomplishes. Right? You see, it's what it accomplishes. If you think about it, I mowed my lawn yesterday, which I hate doing. Lawns are stupid. I hate mowing the lawn. But running the in, the, the motors, because it's electric, not engine, the, mo the two little motors that run the little blades there, the electricity is the cause of the blade spinning. The function, what it accomplished in pushing that damn thing, is that my weeds got bent, my lawn got mowed, right? That my grass was cut. So it's what happens afterwards, what it accomplishes. Cause and function are two different things. We often don't think that way. We tend to think of them. Uh, we often, I mean, very often people don't think that way. Let's just say that. So there's things that are we've learned. By the way, salivating for pizza is something we've learned. Okay, because not just classical conditioning. It's like Pavlov and his dogs, which was a buzzer, not a bell. Can anybody tell you it was a bell? Um, but. It's the same thing. So when you think of food, you salivate. Salivation is the first part of digestion, right? So that's learned. Uh, something that's inherited, something you're built with. So like your reflex, your uh, whatever the hell this is called. So they do it. But yeah, the first time, good. Um, that is, I'm, you're built that way. All I've done there is I've stimulated a, neuro, a, a, a nerve, a bunch of neurons, and it moved, did it again, that's good. You can do the same thing, you know, you can make your finger move by grabbing your ulnar nerve, your foot funny bone, and if you do it right, there it goes. That's behavior. It's pretty simple behavior, but it's still behavior. I learned, people say to learn to walk. 
yeah, I guess I learned to walk, but I probably would have walked without someone teaching me to walk. It's a motor program. I learned to speak, but I was ready to learn to speak. The ability to learn language is built in. The language you learn is So not all behavior, by the way, has an obvious function. It probably does have a function. A lot of times you just don't know what it is. So not all behaviors have an obvious function. Okay. Questions? All right, let's wrap it up for today, and we'll continue the stuff on Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. for listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures in algoma university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh uh, um, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um 
you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to match them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>